Certain positions on the field demand players of a certain stature. You're about as unlikely to find a diminutive target man as you are to have a beanpole tricky winger. There are exceptions to the rule, but they are few and far between. On today's episode of The Eleven, we've cobbled together some of the tallest and shortest players to have played the game to bring you the little and large Eleven. Yes, we, we really are at the cutting edge today, Arthur, aren't we? Um, welcome to the 11. It's your favourite little and large partnership, I hope, Arthur and I today. Um, at 11pod on Twitter is where you can get in touch with us and suggest some names. Um, most of ours are going to be nostalgic and obscure as they usually are. Uh, and today we're going to be playing a 4-4-2 formation. Um, that's, that's good, isn't it, Arthur? Yeah, I think it's a formation that plays into the hands of many of the partnerships that you would find on a mm. football field. I think a little and large centre-back pairing, perhaps, or a little and large strike force. Partnerships that can create a brilliant eleven, and we certainly hope we'll manage to do that today. So kicking us off between the sticks is a small goalkeeper, believe it or not. Okay. I've gone for Jorge Campos. Oh, of course you have. How tall was he, or, or rather short was he? He was only five foot six. Really? That's incredible. That's about a foot smaller than some of the top goalkeepers in the world right now. Exactly. I have to say I'm delighted that we've now got the triumvirate of... North and South America's most entertaining goalkeepers. We had Schillever, we had Higuita, and now we've got Jorge Campos in. I think we only need to add Rogerio Seni for the full set, I'd say. It's wonderful. I mean, I, one thing yeah. I always think of with Jorge Campos is his ridiculous goalkeeping jerseys. Is that fair? That's completely fair. He uh, actually designed many of them himself. Mm. He um, took a keen interest in fashion when he was younger. Essentially, he wore these incredibly striking kits. So if you can imagine, he kind of donned neon coloured kits with pretty dazzling geometric patterns that were, I think, influenced by his childhood when he was growing up in Acapulco. He started his career with Mexican side UNAM in 1988. I think we've talked about their kit before. He was second choice goalkeeper. So in a bid to get more game time, he actually asked the manager if he could be deployed as a striker. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah. He got 14 goals in his debut season, almost making him league top scorer. That's <laughs> mental. What might have been? He was actually um, thinking back on that first goal when he said, I remember it so clearly. We were losing 3-1. I scored and celebrated like crazy. But suddenly I realised I was alone. My teammates yelled at me, we're still losing. But I didn't care. I'd scored. <laughs> I played in both positions after that. It was difficult to train for both. In an ideal world, I'd like to have played as a goalkeeper in the first half of matches and a striker in the second half. I think that would have been wonderful if you've got this kind of versatile option that could play both positions that would be incredible it was um, i mean we talked actually on a previous episode about a player who did the opposite didn't we was it jan collar the giant striker who ended up in goal for borussia dortmund so he was exactly as you say uh, the opposite starting his career in goal and then moving up front and becoming a potent force up front um but jorge soon moved back to goalkeeper becoming first choice he had agility and speed in abundance. Uh, he read the game superbly uh, and his reflexes and ability to charge down strikers um, really made him an incredibly good goalkeeper. And I'd say also influenced the modern day sweeper keeper. I think he'd fit very well in a Pep Guardiola Man City, certainly. He transferred to Atlante in 1995, where he scored... I would say his most famous goal, uh, it was against Cruz Azul. Uh, he started in goal, but his side was struggling to find an equaliser. Instead of sending on another striker from the bench, the manager moved Campos up front and subbed on the backup goalkeeper. 
And then Campos scored a bicycle kick to make it one all. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um, he moved to LA Galaxy in 1996 and he became one of the league's first high profile foreign signings. I think it's fair to say that he contributed quite a lot to the popularity of that league uh, that's grown and grown and grown in recent seasons. Um, and he impressed on the world stage too. He was ranked third best goalkeeper in the world by FIFA in 1994. Uh, and he got a quite staggering 130 international caps for Mexico. So I think when it comes to Jorge Campos, he's just one of those players who is playing in a position that he shouldn't be playing in, frankly. I don't know, it just it would worry me as a fan looking at a team and feeling like the goalkeeper was covering up so little of the of the goal. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think he'd probably struggle to reach the bar. If he yeah, didn't. I know. It's, it's a strange phenomenon. But what I would say is, I mean, my own side, Reading, this is way before my time. We're talking kind of the 70s predominantly. And um, the player who was considered their best ever goalkeeper, perhaps... Reading's best ever player, or at least one of them, is a goalkeeper called Steve Death, who actually played in the top flight as well once for West Ham United. But he made 471 appearances for Reading uh, and he was only five foot seven himself. So oh, I'm, right. I'm talking from a position of knowledge about short goalkeepers, but concern generally. It just doesn't seem to be a modern phenomenon. You think of the, the best goalkeepers in the world right now. The likes of Buffon, the likes of Courtois, they're enormous. They really are. Um, obviously, Costel Pantillamon uh, as well. One of the uh, Who actually, in, in my research, discovered that his, his middle name is Fane, which is my surname. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> Completely bizarre. But um, I think it speaks volumes about what a brilliant goalkeeper Campos was. Uh, the fact that he was able to become such a brilliant goalkeeper despite his his lack of height in a position where it's just it's deemed vital welcome Jorge and Arthur you've taken the left back as well I believe I have indeed how greedy of me I'm sorry <laughs> I've gone for a another shorty in this position uh, it's Alan Wright <laughs> Alan Wright. Now that is a name that conjures up some memories, but very little knowledge. Yeah, he played over 750 League and Cup games for eight clubs. Mm. Uh, and I'd say he's most known for his eight-year, 260-game spell at Aston Villa. Yes. Alan's known for being one of the shortest players in Premier League history standing at only five foot four inches tall. Really? Goodness <laughs> yeah. me. It's incredible. He actually earned the nickname The Mighty Atom. That's incredible. I suppose at yeah. fullback it, it doesn't matter as much, but still that is remarkable. I mean, I, I think what's what's Messi? Messi's about five six, five seven. Something like that. I wouldn't say a fullback is is typically a, a position where height is demanded. But when attacking players are taking you on, let's say the striker drifts wide uh, and challenges you, your five foot four frame is, is hardly likely to make much of an impact. True. Um, I think it's somewhat appropriate that the manager that brought him to Villa was Brian Little. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's great. So good. Villa fans quickly came to appreciate his work rate down the left flank. He made 102 consecutive first team starts in the league and cup games, uh, which was a record at the time, and won the League Cup in 1996. He made the Premier League Team of the Year in 95-96. He didn't score much. He scored 10 in all of his career. But his first Villa goal was absolutely sublime. It was a Gary Charles cross that felt him on the edge of the area. And he casually takes a touch. He flicks it up to himself before rifling it into the top corner. It's just an absolutely stunning goal. Well, when um, you said it was a cross, I was I was thinking it was going to be a header. That's unlikely. <laughs> that would be stunning for Wright, I have to say. <laughs> I wanted to see what the Villa fans thought of, of Wright as a player. And so I scoured the internet and I found a post on Facebook that was asking for, for Villa fans' memories of him. I've just picked out a few. Adam Ringland said, Alan Wright was a legend. 
having a borrower at left back was epic. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Lee Pemberton recalled, he once borrowed a tenner from me as he was a bit short. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Alex Clark slightly more seriously recollects, the little big man was my hero. <laughs> Fabulous engine and a whipped cross into the box that England missed then and now. This was posted in 2014. So I think uh, we were in slightly tougher times than we find ourselves in now. Um, but then I also found Stuart Leslie's recollection incredibly funny. He said, watching Brian Little playing table tennis with Andy Gray as a wide-eyed 14-year-old on trial at Villa in Sutton Coalfield, I had my pictures taken with Andy and John Gidman, and they appeared in a local paper. I was given the paper by the club, but my dad lost it. If anyone has any ideas what the paper was or who took them, I would love to get copies if possible. <laughs> well, this is fantastic. I mean, we've spread the word now. Fingers exactly. crossed. Stuart, hopefully we'll find, uh, we'll find the pictures. <laughs> yeah, at 11 pod, if you know anything about its whereabouts. So Alan was eventually pushed out at Villa due to the emergence of a young J. Lloyd Samuel, but not before he became their third highest cap player in European competition. It was not a very intelligent decision for him back in the day to splash out on a Ferrari, only to find that the accelerator pedal was too far away for his, his legs. Oh no, you're kidding. <laughs> he got into a situation where the accelerator of his car caused a knee strain, which caused him <laughs> oh. to trade his Ferrari and settle for a Rover. So uh, this is incredible. Like, <laughs> How on earth have you researched that? I don't know. There are quite a few um, funny stories about Alan, right? One of them as well, I found on a podcast, actually, Josh Widdicombe's podcast called yes. Quickly Kevin Willie Score. It's good. Um, he tells a story about him signing for Cheltenham Town later in his career in 2007 allegedly when he signed he included as a contractual requirement that he be allowed his own bath in the team changing room there's a shower room and then in the middle of the changing room there's a bath on its own and it was alan wright's bath <laughs> that is so bizarre can you imagine being a fly on the wall in that dressing room exactly all the, all the players having their uh, their showers. Alan just reading his newspaper in his bath. That's Loving astounding. Life. Oh, man. I'm delighted we've got Alan in, though. Welcome to the team, the Little and Large 11. I believe you've picked a, another Little and for the centre-back. I have. It's not, really a, it's not really much of a Little and Large 11. No. So far, it's the Little 11. Um, but don't worry, we have a defensive partnership of little and large, like you were saying in the intro, Arthur. So we'll make up for it. But my uh, my little contribution is Chris Perry. Oh, Chris Perry. Brilliant yeah. pick. I believe he played for Southampton once, didn't he? He did indeed. Uh, I think it was when we were in the championship. He just added a dose of experience at a time when we were pretty inexperienced. We had a lot of young players and Chris came in and was just, I think he was 36 or something at the time. Yeah. Um, and he played played for us in the championship, I think, as well, when we got relegated from the championship. He was in League One with us. I suppose the fact that we got relegated from the championship when he was with us probably doesn't speak a lot about his ability at that point in his career. But a good player nonetheless, I'd say. Yeah, I, I was always a big fan of Chris Perry, actually. I, I think in a similar way to what Ivan Cordoba did at Inter Milan, his diminutive presence in the back four had a sort of calming effect and he was able to swashbuckle in a way that some of the taller centre-arse perhaps couldn't. He was five foot nine. So, I mean, if, if that was a okay. striker, it, it, you wouldn't bat an eyelid. But as a centre-back, five foot nine is is pretty darn small. Um, but he would play for Wimbledon, Tottenham and Charlton, making over 350 Premier League appearances. Um, like I say, he started his career with the Dons, the team he supported as a boy and grew up within walking distance of the club's ground, Plough Lane. Um, his centre-back partner at Wimbledon was Kenny Cunningham. Do you remember Kenny? No, that doesn't ring a bell for me. Really? Kenny no. Cunningham. He uh, went on to play for Birmingham as well, and he was only six foot himself. So it was a fairly short centre-back partnership for a team that are associated with almost being the villains and the rough boys of, of football during that era. 
Having been tipped uh, for a move to Manchester United, such was his form, um, Perry, who was expected to be a future England international, moved to North London in 1999, joining Tottenham Hotspur for £4 million. That made him the record signing for Tottenham at that point. Um, and I think many people considered him a fantastic signing for Spurs. He was wholehearted. He was a leader for them, incredibly effective. Um, and despite his diminutive stature, he was he, he had a massive presence within the dressing room as well. Um, but it's pointless me commenting. I've asked Tottenham fan Joe Alexander his thoughts on Chris Perry. Chris Perry will always have a special place in my heart. Not only because he started at centre-back on the first Tottenham match I ever attended live as a six-year-old boy back in January 2000, but also because I used to think he was actually quite a good centre-half for Tottenham. I'll be honest, I didn't realise he was so short, which is also weird because one of my main memories of Chris Perry is scoring a goal for Spurs from a corner against Manchester City at Main Road. We won that game and we didn't win away much when I was younger, so he was a big part of that too. So a popular figure, uh, but he would leave White Hart Lane and he'd go on to play for Charlton under Alan Kerbishley, forming decent partnerships with Mark Fish and Jonathan Fortune. Uh, and But by the time his career ended, he had the second most Premier League appearances without an England cap behind someone you actually nominated for the uncapped England eleven. Do you remember who? It's got to be Steve Bruce, surely. No, no, it's oh, not. Oh, no, actually. maybe Kevin Nolan? Yeah, Kevin Nolan. There well done. So, Perry, certainly someone who was overlooked by the England setup. I don't think his height would have come into that, but um, it, he just struck me as a, a pretty decent pick for someone who had a larger presence than his height would suggest. I completely agree. In my opinion, I'd say he's, he's a Spurs defender. So, it surprises me that he spent so much of his career with Wimbledon. I'd say it's probably because the early noughties was when I was really getting into my football. And so yeah. Chris Perry, I can see him in a, in a Spurs shirt. So it's really good to hear Joe's thoughts on that. Was he uh, in his cupboard under the stairs? This time? No, it was a bit clearer this time. It wasn't quite the whisperer. Have we got a lofty centre-back paired alongside Perry? Okay, I mean, I, I object to your usage of the word lofty, but <laughs> I, I don't know whether we're... Can a person be lofty? Lofty means of imposing height. I just, I don't think I've ever heard a person described as lofty. I've heard aspirations described as lofty, concepts and, and things, but not people. I've gone for Bobo Balde. <laughs> oh, the Celtic days, I remember. Yeah, his name was actually Dian Bobo Balde, but he was commonly, as discussed, called Bobo. He was a six foot five juggernaut at the back, um, <laughs> born in Marseille. But as you say, he was a staple of Celtic for a number of years. He won five league titles, three Scottish Cups, two Scottish League Cups, and also got to the UEFA Cup final with Celtic. We won't talk about the final itself because they were playing against Porto and he got sent off. But despite that, it was an enormously successful career for Celtic, I would say. I, I think commonly people hold the view that Martin O'Neill got the best out of him. And I think that's illustrated by his fairly unimpressive career, other than playing for Celtic. Mm. The entirety of his career, aside from Celtic, was spent in France, most prominently at Toulouse, where they signed him from, but also Valenciennes. Uh, Arles Avignon and a few loans out to the lower leagues of France from his hometown club, Marseille. Sadly, he didn't actually appear for Marseille. Uh, Michael Gannon in the Daily Record describes the style of play that you would commonly come to associate with Bobo. He said, the big fellow could make folk wince with some challenges that should only have been shown after the watershed. <laughs> Bobo's gonna get you wasn't so much a chant as a promise and even his teammates had to stay out of his way in training as the defender never had an off switch uh, and that's mm. the chant that Celtic fans used to used to sing quite a lot from the 
from the stands. I haven't actually managed to get a clip of what it sounds like, but I'm imagining it's Bobo's going to get you. Bobo's going to get you. Da, 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 da. It's got to be that that tune. I, I didn't have that tune in my head, actually. What I had more have? sort of Bobo's going to get you. Like, like get sort of Belly's going to get you. Who, who's Belly? Have you heard that advert? Belly's going to get you. I don't think God, so. You've really missed out, Arthur. I really have. I'll have to Google it now. Yeah. Um, between 2003 and 2006, his defensive partner at the centre of defence was fellow six-foot-fiver Stanislav Varga. Oh. Uh, he was a player whose, whose spell at Celtic was bookended by two separate short periods of time with Sunderland. That's a seriously imposing centre-back pairing. Two six-foot-five players. Imagine, imagine winning a header at a corner. Yeah. I mean, if you've zonal marked with that defence, you'd be absolutely insane. Um, and, and actually, I, I kind of remember Bobo Balde as being quite good. Yeah. He, was, he was Guinean, wasn't he? He was Guinean. Um, he made quite a few appearances for them internationally. And I think they got to the last eight of the AFCON a few that's, times. Yes, yeah, pretty good. Um, which is pretty good for a nation that size, I'd say. One of the biggest results of his time at Celtic was a magnificent 1-0 victory against Barcelona in the UEFA Cup. Um, his captain, Jackie McNamara, tells a funny story about an incident at halftime. It kind of sums up the fact that Balde was confrontational, to say the least. He said, if someone cut Bobo's lip, I just went, oh, no. He used to turn around and whack someone in the tunnel. I think it was Motta. So Bobo, he's bleeding just before half time. We come off and bang, he's cracked Motta. Big Rab Douglas stepped in and took him aside. He's trying to stop the situation. We get in the changing room and the referee comes in. He says, Celtic captain and Barcelona captain, come to the referee's room. He went, number four, Barcelona, off. And Celtic, number 20. I'm going, Bobo's number six. Who's number 20? <laughs> I walked in and Martin's standing there and I go, Rab, you're off. <laughs> Martin's going mental and I'm just sitting down all calm. And I went, he sent Rab off. So he went off on one. It ended up being the making of big David Marshall who got his chance. So um, basically Bobo, a little case of mistaken identity was very fortunate in that sense for Celtic because Bobo put in an absolute shift in the second half. Unbelievable yeah. second half. He had the wind in his sails for basically getting away with a, a pretty flagrant punch. <laughs> Goodness me. Ridiculous. Um, O'Neill's departure from Celtic uh, saw him play less frequently. Uh, successor Gordon Strachan clearly didn't rate Balde, which is surprising considering some of the entries on his Wikipedia page, which suggest that he made his first start of the 2007-08 season on the 26th of December 2007 exactly a year after his last performance. And he played in a 2-0 away win to Dundee United. He helped Celtic to their first away clean sheet in almost 15 months. And he got man of the match. And then in April 2008, he replaced the suspended Gary Caldwell to make his first appearance since that Dundee game. He again won man of the match in a clean sheet. So I, I just don't understand what more a player has to do to get game time than keep a clean sheet and get him out of the match. It's yeah, nothing, nothing. I think it just wasn't to be for Bobo. I love that name. Yeah, what a name. I'd like to bring that back. <laughs> Bobo Warden. Yeah, yeah it doesn't sound quite right, does it? <laughs> Not quite. And right back, Ben. Yes, we uh, we have another giant to complete the two and two in the little and large 11. Uh, and that is Santiago Virgini. Yes, Sunderland fullback. Yeah, um, famed for a quite ridiculous own goal, which I'll come on to. I think I remember it fairly fondly. I, I can understand why. Uh, he was a towering six foot three right back from sunny Argentina. And, and yeah, that six foot three, again, depends on your position, whether that's considered tall or not. But I, I just felt it was... It was particularly striking because he was in such a generally tall defence. The likes of Carlos Cuellar, John O'Shea, all part of that Sunderland team when he was playing there. 
Uh, he yeah. came from sunny Argentina, but he didn't cover himself in glory whilst in England. Um, he signed for Gus Poyet's side on an initial loan deal in 2014 with a view to permanent. Um, and having played several games in centre defence, he eventually moved out to the right back position to cover for injuries. Uh, despite his clumsiness and totally unnecessary hype for this position, he kind of started to make it his own and, and Sunderland escaped relegation in his first season, finishing 14th. He then re-signed on another season-long loan, um, but in October, um, there was an 8-0 defeat to Southampton, uh, and this is where his <laughs> moment of glory came. Were you at the match, Arthur? Sadly, I wasn't, but I was certainly watching it, and it was just one of those games where, obviously, Virginie's comical own goal just opened the floodgates and Sunderland wilted. And I think as a Southampton fan, you know, when your team wins 8-0, you know, you always have to temper it slightly with the fact that two teams have done worse than that to us. So yeah. you've got to take the rough with the smooth. And certainly this was a smooth experience. I'm not sure I'm capable of aptly describing this own goal. I think it's one you'll have to go and look at online. <clears throat> but somehow Virginie has intercepted this bobbling Morgan Schneidel in touch on the edge of his box and he's cut across the ball on the half volley and it's spiralled round the goalkeeper in, in off the inside of his own post. It is, it's one of the most remarkable finishes you will ever see, sadly, in his own net. It's a pretty good finish. If he was one really of our strikers, is. I'd be lauding him as a, uh, a quality strike partner to Graziano Pella. I really enjoyed Michael Graham's description of Virginie for the Roker report. So I'm going to read some of it for you now. He said, standing at six feet and three inches, shoulders square like a valiant medieval knight, his hair dark and shimmering, sculpted yet wild. Eyes of deep mahogany, a stare penetrating yet mesmerising. A face chiselled like a bronze immortal, a tuft of hair under that chin that says, I can grow a beard, I just don't have to, I'm man enough already. When Virginie first joined us in January of this year, his opening performances led me to believe that he had never even seen, never mind kicked a football in his entire life. He was both careless and clueless, but in a genuine and blissfully ignorant type of way, like a puppy pissing on your carpet. Don't scold him. He doesn't know any better. I thought that aptly described his performances. That's absolutely brilliant. I really, really love that. Also, that opening paragraph, I was like, you know, does he does he fancy Virginie? Is he just really into I think, it? I think I can I like to imagine that Michael Graham's written this article while just staring at a Google image of Santiago, um, who did actually manage to acclaim some sort of cult hero status at Sunderland because of his brief spell and because of that own goal. Um Perhaps for the wrong reasons, he was someone who the fans love to talk about and sing his name. Um, he's still playing. He plays for Atletico Tucumán out in Argentina, age 33. Um, but perhaps sensibly, he's resorted to that centre-back role. Uh, so he doesn't have to do quite so much of that uh, bombing forward. I think it's surprising that a, a player like Santiago, Santiago Vigini, who we saw be pretty comically bad in the Premier League, had accumulated Argentinian international caps before arriving at Sunderland. They probably thought, you know, we're getting a seriously good defender here. Outrageous. Continues his run up and oh. from Pelé. What an extraordinary goal from Virginia. It's half time. And whilst we tuck into our oranges... I thought it'd be worthwhile to have a little discussion about the great little and large strike pairings of times gone by. Uh, and perhaps, perhaps, as we love to do on the 11, crown the most definitive little and large strike pairings. We love a definitive here on yeah, the 11. Yeah, we do. Uh, I, I just love this little and large strike partnership concept because... I think it's been tried and tested over the years and it's not always something which pays off. It's this weird myth that every strike force has to have a big man and a little nippy player. But certainly there have been some great ones over the years. We can't deny that. I think in my early research, a few that sprung to mind, Heskey and Owen, 
to name two fairly common players for Liverpool. Um, but also in the Football League, we had some some crackers. Uh, Steve Howard, who was six foot three alongside Paul Pesky-Solido, who was five foot seven, managed to get Derby promoted to the Premier League in 2007. Of course, I think actually... It's amazing how this little and large branding can be affected by just how tall one player is. So another example of what's commonly referred to as little and large is Jan Koller and Milan Baros for for Czech Republic. But Baros is six foot. He's not little at all. It's just Koller's six eight. (laughs) That is true. It's amazing in that sense. Some of the classics that many people will be clamouring for at this stage I think there are two big ones, and they would be Crouch and Defoe for Mm. Portsmouth, Spurs, England, and Quinn and Phillips. Those are the two, in my mind, archetypal Premier League little and large pairings. Crouch and Defoe, their most productive season was at Spurs in 2009-10. They scored 26 goals between them. Um, Defoe taking the brunt of the burden with 18. And Quinn and Phillips... 1999-2000 in the Premier League, they scored 44 league goals between them. Absolutely staggering. And it was Sunderland's first season back in the Premier League following promotion. Quinn was 6'4", Phillips was 5'7". We all know Crouch, 6'7", Defoe, 5'7". To have a foot between your strike pairing is pretty staggering. Really amazing. And actually, the fact that they went on to play for England shows you that that there was something in that partnership. They were both chipping in with goals at that time. There's also Zola and Flo, five foot mm-hmm. six and six foot four, respectively, at Chelsea. A couple of niche ones that I enjoyed looking up. It's well known that Lucina Traore is yeah. one of the largest strikers. He had a very good spell at Kuban Krasnodar <laughs> in the 2011-12 season, where he partnered with Gigel Buka, who's a nippy Romanian five foot seven striker, and of wow. course Lucina Traore, six foot eight, over a foot between them. I love the idea that Gigel Buka is being considered in the the definitive best little and large strike partnership of all time. Any others that stuck out for you, Ben? Well, yes, actually, Arthur. I think I can end this debate once and for all. Um, my research has churned out a tall and small strike partnership in the Swiss league that I wanted to mention. Are you ready? Yes. Marco Strella and Alexander Fry. FC Basel. FC Basel. Yeah, they had a really successful period in the kind of late noughties, early tens. Um, And and what I found particularly remarkable about this is that in Basel's all-time top goal-scoring table, Marco Strella is first with 144 goals and Alex Fry is fourth with 108. And almost all of those goals came with the two of them playing up front. Strella was an enormous six foot five and Alexander Fry was five foot ten, which again is not that small, but pales in comparison to his strike partner. They were so successful, they'd go on to play for Switzerland together too and have successful careers there. Two players who, in and of themselves, I didn't think were exceptional. Perhaps Fry was slightly more highly regarded. But when they came together as a duo, they were almost unstoppable. And that's what I loved about that partnership. That's a superb nomination. Uh, And I'd like to rival it with one final one from me. And it's another team who play in blue and red. Okay. It's the 2007 CSKA Moscow strike pairing. Oh, yeah. Wagner Love and Joe. Yes, I love that. (laughs) I love that. And I love the fact that Joe then ended up moving to the the Premier League, of course, and kind of proving that he wasn't all that. (laughs) He needed the comforting presence of Wagner Love alongside him. Clearly, they scored 35 goals between them that season, 17 and 18, respectively. They're sharing the load. They're really spreading the load there. As you say, Joe left for City, but Wagner Love got 39 on his own the season after Joe left for City. And Joe only scored one league goal for City. I I really like that shout. I actually think as far as little and large partnerships go, that's got a bit of everything. And I think it's a more interesting pick than Crouch and Defoe. 
And today, in addition to our up for grabs position, we'll have another poll for your delectation. You can vote for the definitive little and large strike pairing. Inside four minutes, a good improvised finish from the six foot eight inch striker. Okay, so every week we get nominations in for our up for grabs position. Uh, we allow you to vote on Twitter at 11pod for your favourite, uh, and they take up the final place in the 11. This time we're going to be discussing the left midfield for that, and we've got a couple of great nominations in. So we move swiftly into the centre and our little centre midfielder. For that, I've picked J-Tab. <laughs> so good. I think actually a name as well that sounds small. <laughs> well, it's only three letters after J. He was a lovely guy. I, I had the pleasure actually of meeting him once because he played for Reading, of course, just in the bar area. He was such a nice guy, um, but he was only five foot five. The way I said but wow. suggested that small people aren't nice. <laughs> and, and being quite small myself, I, I feel like that's insulting. But um, he, he was great. He was a brilliant character in the dressing room. He could be utilised in a number of roles. And I think that's why he was a popular choice throughout his career with managers. Tetchy, full-blooded. He could go box to box. He could be a nippy winger or even a fullback. Um, and he only played for four clubs throughout a 16-year career, so he was pretty loyal. Starting out at Brentford, he was actually deemed too short by Crystal Palace to play professional football um, until Brentford picked him up. Um, and he played a major role in the 2003-2004 season, contributing 11 goals in 40 appearances and making him the club's top scorer, or second top scorer rather, which is pretty impressive, I would say, for a midfielder. He'd play in two unsuccessful playoff quests with the Bees before moving to Coventry, uh, taking a chance to play consistent championship football. He was player of the season for Coventry in 2007-2008, making himself really popular with the fans. He was desperate to play Premier League football at some point in his career, and he would get that chance at Reading. Uh, he played in the Premier League in the 2012-2013 season, which was an awful campaign. Unfortunately, Brian McDermott, who's a legend in, in these parts, was exposed for having a few tactical frailties. The money wasn't spent effectively. We then sacked him. We picked up your manager, Nigel Adkins. That didn't really work. Um, the January window was a bit embarrassing. We ended up signing Daniel Cariso, who played 45 minutes of football. Um, Hope Akpan and Nick Blackman. And that was our attempt to stay in the league. So um, it, it was all a bit disappointing. But Tab did get to fulfil that dream of playing at the very highest level. Was he himself reasonably good in the Premier League? Or was he? did he find it a cut above? Because I quite like the career trajectory that he has throughout his mm. career. Moving from Brentford, who themselves went from second division to League One, Coventry Championship, Reading Championship Premier League. I love the fact that it's been a slow and steady progression to the pinnacle. And then it's yeah. it's fairly devastating that he just, he wasn't good at that level. He wasn't quite there. Um, he was heralded for some good performances, particularly one against Manchester United, but he was, he was a utility player used primarily in centre midfield by the Royals, but not really a big part of our starting lineup. Um, <laughs> so the pun. yeah, popular, but not, perhaps quite good enough for the Premier League. And for a centre midfielder, do you think it's a position where, you know, height and size is is a requirement? I guess we've seen with the likes of Xavi and Iniesta that you can be diminutive and still be a very good centre midfielder. And I guess you bring a different style to your play, whereas the centre midfield partner that I shall be shortly talking about is a large centre midfielder and he brings different qualities to the table, I guess a small player will be maybe better with the ball at his feet, perhaps, you yeah. could say. Quite commonly, I think you, you do have those smaller kind of playmakers, if you like, in the centre of the park. But five foot five is particularly small and particularly for such a combative player like Tab. He was breaking up the play, flying into tackles. Um, so he did get dwarfed a bit in the centre of the park, particularly alongside some of the, the taller midfielders that you come up against in the Premier League. Um, but I, th I think that was part of 
why people loved him. They kind of loved the fact that we had little Jay Tab playing in the midfield and he, he was, um, you know, such a likeable guy. He actually had a really fascinating career after football. Um, he had a twilight at Ipswich Town and then left to pursue other interests in other sports. He joined old Wimbledonians rugby union side in 2017. And playing actually, as a scrum half? Yeah, he was playing as a scrum half. And he only got one. <laughs> actually, do you know what? I don't know whether it was a scrum half or a winger, but he got only one okay. game away from playing at Twickenham for them. So that wow. was fairly successful. He, he would have been one of those annoying boys at school. He was just good at every single sport, I reckon. Golf was another fancy of his. So he ended up caddying on the women's golf tour. He's a member of Wimbledon Park Golf Club and managed to get an invite to carry the clubs across the globe for one of their lady players, Lauren Horsford. He said, I doubted she would be hiring caddies. So I sent her dad a message and asked if she'd be interested. She was well up for it. So I ended up going to Thailand, Spain and caddying her for the US Open qualifying. It was really fun, but there wasn't much I could say to her because she's the pro. So he had that experience. And then to cap it all off, he managed to start work as a stable lad pursuing an interest in horse racing. In October 2021, it was reported that Tab would ride at the Fitz Dares Racing Welfare Charity Flat Race at Wincanton as a jockey. He finished sixth on the Hobbs-trained Umdaney and described the occasion as the best feeling ever. So he was so small that he was even passed as a jockey after his football career. That's wonderful. He's really made the most of life post-playing career. And actually, I have to say, a quick note, his golf membership is also fortunate because Wimbledon Park, I think, was famously the club that the members voted to sell to Wimbledon. So I think they sold for 64 million quid to Wimbledon. It was split equally amongst members of the club. And so he'll probably have got a lovely windfall from that. Nice. Very nice. Well, J-Tab in the midfield. Who's he alongside? A man who certainly will dwarf him. It's... Papa Booba Diop. <laughs> oh, Papa. Oh, what a man. What a man. A towering six foot five defensive midfielder known as a pretty powerful presence in the centre of the park. And this led to his nickname, The Wardrobe, yeah. uh, given to him because of his stature. I love that. What a great nickname. I really love that, but I also never really got it. Well, what, what is wardrobe. it other than They're the fact that it's really big? Stocky and they're stocky, but they've got like clothes in. I don't really get it. I don't really get it. Has he got doors? Yeah. I mean, he's got clothes on. Maybe that's yeah, allowed. I suppose so. Anyway. Um, he came into the na- well, the world's collective conscience after scoring the winner against world champions France in the opening game of the 2002 World Cup. There's just an iconic photo of him with his big gold chain celebrating that goal it's a great chain that he's got around his neck i don't think you're allowed to have that in football these days are you no i don't think you are um <laughs> you're gonna have to like tape up your earrings and stuff that you anyway. i remember Henri camera taping everything up before games yeah he was a great player Henri camera <laughs> <laughs> and he also scored a brace against uruguay ensuring that his team would be permanently regarded as heroes in dakar um after that World Cup, performance was backed up by impressive form for Lens in France. Fulham brought him to the Premier League in a £6 million deal. Chris Coleman said when he first arrived, he spoke no English at all. So in the training sessions, when he was calling for the ball from his teammates, he'd bark like a dog. What? <laughs> a sort of woof woof. He'd make noises like that to get their attention. When he first started doing it, the lads just fell down laughing. They didn't have a clue why he was doing it. <laughs> That's excellent. I suppose it is a pretty universal sound and would, would make people aware that he wanted to. It's a fairly universal sound, Arthur, but it doesn't mean pass me the ball. <laughs> uh, his first season it included stunning strikes against Chelsea, Man U and Norwich. There's quite a funny story from Gabriel Zakuani. Okay, yeah, Gabriel Zakharani for Peterborough. Indeed, he said, "Still remember letting Booba stay at my house while his apartment was being refurbished. I went on holiday and came back. He had his family photos all over the house. Took me a week to build up the courage to kindly ask him to take them down and let me have my own bedroom back." <laughs> oh, Papa! 
And he's also responsible for this absolutely classic bit of Chris Kamara soccer Saturday confusion. Well, that's Ryan, Jeff. Papa Booper Diop, the man mounted himself, is playing as a striker. And he's got uh, Healy one side of him and Diamante Kamara the other side. Papa Booper Diop with a header. Ah, it's a goal. It's a goal, Jeff. Is it David Healy's running away? Andy Dursel's playing on. Sorry, my monitor's down again. I'm looking over my shoulder. What? I don't really know the assistant. Hasn't given it. Oh, the assistant hasn't given it, I don't think, Jeff. No, the referee hasn't given it either. Don't really know what's happening, Jeff. <laughs> could be, could be not. I just absolutely love that. Chris Kamara, what a man. What a man. He never quite reached the heights of that first season at Fulham. Uh, he was allowed to leave for Portsmouth, where he would form part of a classic midfield, including Suleiman Tari and Lasana Diara. And he led them to FA Cup success in his first season there. After a season later with AK Athens, he signed in 2011 for West Ham and helped them to do promotion from the championship before an even briefer stint at Birmingham later in his career. Tragically, he died in 2020 in Paris at the age of just 42 after a long battle with Lou Gehrig's disease. Obviously an incredibly tragic moment that was mourned by the world of football. But I think he's a player that's remembered immensely fondly by all of the clubs that he played for. I think he was life and soul, like incredibly smiley and happy individual and just good to have around the club. And that, in addition to his brilliant ability with a football demonstrated with that first season at Fulham, I think makes him a classic inclusion to this little and large 11. Brilliant. Diop and Tab. That's a fantastic centre-mid <laughs> partnership. I'd love to have seen that. Uh, and on the right side, I've gone for an uncharacteristically tall winger. You've mentioned the surname already this episode, but it's a different guy. Jostein Flo. Oh, OK. Is this is this Toro Andre's brother? Yes, it is Tori Andre Flo's brother. Um, he was a six foot four lanky Scandi. Um, another player who played in a variety of positions throughout his career, quite commonly up front. But for Norway, his nation, it was the right wing and right wing only. Um, and this is because his brother, Tori Andre, basically had the centre forward position nailed down. Um, but he was such a talented boy, Josh Stein Flo, that they had to weave him into the squad somehow. And I think a piece of genius from Egil Olsen made the right wing position work for him. He was instrumental in the tactics that Norway deployed in the 90s. They played a 4-5-1 formation and the left back would hit long balls towards the right hand side for Josh Stein Flo to head down towards the strikers and approaching centre midfielders. Uh, and this was hugely successful and led to a number of goals, several of which got Norway up to their highest ever world ranking during that period. It became known as the flow pass after Jostein Flo's influence on this particular tactic. And an incredible example of this can be seen on YouTube in the 1998 World Cup game against Brazil, where Norway sprung an upset and won 2-1. Um, so he, he was actually so iconic as a tall right winger that a whole tactic was built around Jostein. Absolutely love that. And actually looking at his goal scoring record, it's incredible that a player like that was shifted onto the wing. Uh, and I guess it's just it's by virtue of just having two incredibly talented players and just trying to fit them in. Uh, I also noticed from Wikipedia that he was born in flow. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, a place called Flo, a small village in, in the north of Norway. Wicked. Well, he played for Strin, Sonjdal, Molde and Stroms Godzet throughout his career, um, capped a number of times for his nation as well. But the outlier was a, an 84-game spell as a centre-forward for Sheffield United. He played in the relegation season in 93-94 and continued with them for two seasons in the championship. He was signed as a replacement, actually, for Brian Dean, most famed for scoring the first ever Premier League goal. Uh, when he moved on, Flo was signed for £400,000. Um, Dave Bassett adding Roger Nilsson soon after. 
Uh, and this sparked the Bramall Lane crowd to wear Viking helmets in honour of their Nordic recruits. Uh, and also for many to put flow on their back as their shirt printing. Uh, but the, uh, the writer of this article, Kevin Darling, correctly uh, points out that actually this was Yorkshire. And if it was charged by the letter, there was quite a big incentive to get flow <laughs> on your back. Unfortunately, Joss Stein uh, wasn't really hugely successful. Um, he paled in comparison to Dean. His goal scoring record wasn't great. Uh, and he moved on soon after that. And I believe he's working for Strom's Godset now uh, as part of their behind the scenes team. But nice to remember him. Right up front, and we've got our own little and large pairing. And I've gone for the little one, and I've chosen Rob Earnshaw. Oh, man, he was a nuisance. I used to hate playing against Rob Earnshaw. You, so you played against Rob Earnshaw? Yeah, we used to play five-a-side in Cardiff. No, when, um, when Redding came up against him, he was an absolute nuisance. He was a five-for-eight striker, born in Zambia and grew up in South Wales. And so he joined Cardiff as a trainee in 1997, and he embarked on a hugely successful career. He had 579 games. He scored 236 goals. I think the stats speak for themselves. 105 of those goals were for Cardiff, a club where he's revered as a hero. He helped them rise up the leagues from third division to the championship before West Brom, eventually the club that prized him away from his hometown. 3.6 million it took to, to take him to the Hawthorns. Earnshaw had pace, an excellent finish, and an entertaining array of celebrations from the front flip to the duck dance. <laughs> he would entertain fans left, right and centre. His West Brom career started with a bang, uh, 11 league goals in his first season in the Premier League, including a hat-trick against Charlton in March 2005 after coming on as a sub with only 30 minutes remaining. Uh, and that hat-trick also gave rise to a simply magnificent piece of pub trivia, which is that Rob Earnshaw is the only player to have scored a hat-trick in the Premier League, all three divisions of the English Football League, the League Cup, the FA Cup, and for his country, an international match. No Absolutely way. Absolutely unreal. That's great. That's a brilliant stat. I guess the rise up the leagues with Cardiff helped immensely in that. He was a player who was frankly, of Premier League pedigree, but was playing in the very, very low leagues. Sadly, that form couldn't really be sustained. He embarked on a bit of championship journeymanism, very much finding his level in the championship and proving a reliable scorer at Norwich and Nottingham Forest. I think we, we're probably best uh, to forget about his disastrous spell at Derby. Uh, he was signed maybe even as a record-breaking signing, but they paid a lot of money for him and he scored one goal in that disastrous Billy Davis and Paul Jewell Premier League campaign. Yeah. He chose to represent Wales internationally um, and his 16 goals in 59 appearances puts him tied eighth on their all-time top scorer list. So he certainly made an impact on the, on the international stage too. And also, I really enjoy that he's become a bit of a Twitter cult hero with <laughs> just some utterly random and sometimes fairly philosophical tweets. Nice. Uh, I've just picked out a selection of them. The first is, there is zero evidence that today is Sunday. We are all kind of relying on the fact that someone has kept an accurate count since the first one ever. <laughs> what? And then a couple of incredibly philosophical ones, I think. What if plants and trees are actually farming us, giving us <laughs> oxygen until we eventually decompose and they consume us? <laughs> what? <laughs> Just so random. But I really I want think this a lot of... to become a regular feature on this podcast. What, what's Rob Earnshaw said now? Because this is comedy gold. I love it. And who's he playing alongside up front? Well, we need someone to nod the ball onto him. And who better? The Nikola Zigic. Yes, the giant. Yeah, he's the um he's the joint third tallest player in Premier League history. Um, do you know who the tallest two are? Um is one of them Costel Pentilamon? Correct. The other one you've also mentioned today. Uh 
Peter Crouch? No. No, it's Lucina Traore who had a spell oh, at Everton. Of course. On that note, there are a couple of youth goalkeepers, I think, at Brighton and Chelsea currently, who are both about six foot ten or something. Really? Is it that tall? That's something crazy. like that, maybe six nine. It's crazy. Mm. Well, Zigic joined Birmingham for £6 million. Um, he scored in the League Cup final against Arsenal as the club sealed their first major trophy since 1963. Uh, he netted five league goals in what proved to be his first and only Premier League season uh, as Alex McLeish's side were relegated on the final day. But to be fair, he stuck with the Blues. Um, he had four more years in the Championship. Uh, and he scored in Birmingham's 2-2 draw at Bolton in 2014 as they dramatically avoided relegation to League One with an injury time equaliser. So he kind of stuck at it. And I suppose that was my residing memory. I kind of felt like Zigic was a lower Premier League player, championship. I'd seen him in the championship a few times. Um, but the more I looked into it, I don't think that spell at Birmingham was a fair reflection he joined when he was in his early 30s, which I hadn't realised. And before then, he played UEFA Cup football, Champions League football. That was with both Red Star, Belgrade and Valencia. Um, and he'd scored an impressive 13 goals in 19 La Liga games while on loan at Racing Santander. Um, he scored 20 goals in 50 games for his country and had been described um, as a relatively young footballer by Pep Guardiola as unstoppable one of the best ever <laughs> serbian strikers without doubt six foot seven point five inches of great value entertainment um and I, I i feel like i've done him a disservice all these years having read that absolutely that's a phenomenal record i wasn't aware as well that he was in his 30s when or as sorry as you would say he touched his 30s by the time <laughs> he arrived at Birmingham. <laughs> exactly and also I was unaware of the fact that he stuck with them for so long in the championship I think that's a really uh really admirable thing for the for the Serb it certainly is I mean he he dwarfed his teammates at, at Birmingham he played up front once with five foot seven strike partner Kevin Phillips um but I think his most comical moment at Birmingham was his effort to learn the lines and contribute to Birmingham's Christmas song video. Uh, this is available on YouTube. They decided to sing Randolph, the red-nosed reindeer, after their goalkeeper. Uh, and here is Nicola trying his best to reel out his line. Like a light bulb, yeah. Yeah. Just a uh, singing or what? Uh, it's a shout-out. Yeah? Yeah. Like a light bulb. Yeah. 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 Like a light bulb. Yeah. Yeah. Straight down. Straight down the camera. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like a light. Like a light. Like a light bulb. 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 Yeah. Okay. Like a light bulb. Yeah. Like a light bulb. Like a light bulb. Yeah. Like a light. Like a light. Yeah. There we have it, Nicola. Bulb. Yep. <laughs> boop. Yep. Yep. Boop. Yep. <laughs> oh, Nicholas Zigic. Uh, I really miss him. Up for grabs and we return to our left midfielder in this little and large 11. So little or large, it's up to you. But we've got some nominations first and we're delighted to have one from Kat Lucas. Thanks so much, Kat. She is a journalist for the iPaper and she has also recently had published a book, Tottenham from the Lane, the story of Spurs in N17, which is a local history of Tottenham Hotspur from the Marshes to the new stadium. Do check that out. Let's see who she nominates. My pick would have to be Leon Knight, who was physically minuscule, but a giant of our times. He was, I say was, I think he's still playing. Um, he must be like 30, 30, late 30s now. But he was on, he started at Chelsea, I want to say. 
Um, and he was on their books for years, but never played for them, uh, standard. And then <laughs> later was at MK Dons and Wickham, so obviously a big fan of North Bucks. What a guy. Leon Knight, Knight, Knight. That was his song. Leon Knight. Oh, man, that's such a blast from the past. I love that. I don't know whether he's a relation to Zat. Is he, he a, is. is he a, he he's is. His, he's his cousin, which I find remarkable given Leon Knight is what, five foot five? And Zat Knight is, <laughs> what is he, six foot six? Yeah, something like that. I certainly considered him as a centre back for, uh, for this 11. Uh, that's a great nomination. And another one we've received from my colleague, Arthur Ellis. Another Arthur. Is this just Miller you? Insurance. Is this just you putting on an accent? No. No, it's actually not. It's uh, it is my colleague Arthur Ellis, and we are constantly vying over who will be considered Arthur One and who will be considered Arthur Two. So Ooh. please do vote on Twitter. Oh man, we got so many <laughs> votes. <laughs> All of the votes. Uh, but Arthur's also a player for Rosslyn Park Rugby Club, who are pushing for promotion in national one so he might be a championship rugby player next season that would be very exciting and he's kindly nominated a player for the 11. My pick for left wing is Janino, the uh, Middlesbrough playmaker uh, very diminutive his nickname was TLF the little fella his height I think certainly helped him he uh, was pretty good at dribbling low center of gravity very good close control he could uh, knock it around and touch it around people he Loved the Northeast so much. He actually had three spells in Middlesbrough, which is pretty uh, unique for someone from Brazil. Yes, a real throwback there. Juninho, what a player. Yeah, I hadn't actually appreciated quite how small Juninho was. Yeah, he's little, very, very little. He, he would fit perfectly into this side. But ultimately, it is going to be your choice. You're going to have two more that you can vote for. Um, I've got a nomination and I've gone little as well. I've gone for Albert Cruzat. <laughs> That's a name that I have not heard in donkey's years. Yes. Um, he was a Spanish left winger, just five foot five, known for his incredible pace and dribbling ability. A rascal on the flank. Um, he played the majority of his career in Almeria, um, helping them to promotion in La Liga and securing their first Copa del Rey semi-final. Struck up a partnership with Alvaro Negredo, which would ultimately lead to both of them earning moves to England. His would come in 2011 when he'd play 15 games for Wigan under Roberto Martinez. He'd only score one goal in a three-all draw against Blackburn, um, but ultimately he wouldn't really hold down his starting place. I thought it was particularly appropriate to try and get him in um, because of this great chant from the Tottenham fans. Uh, when he came on against them at White Hart Lane, they started chanting, why is your mascot on the pitch? <laughs> I enjoyed that. That's so good. Well done, Albert. You're in the vote. Arthur, who have you got? And I thought I'd throw a cat in amongst the pigeons with a large nomination. Mm. Um, as you noted with Jostein Flo, it's not that easy to find tall, wide men. No. Uh, but I have managed to find Jan Kozak. <laughs> <laughs> you must have looked very hard to try and find him. I looked at so many players and then looked at their height and I was like, I mean, it's 5'11", it's it's not not, you know, it's not, it's not tall enough. And yeah. unfortunately, Jan Kozak is six foot three. Um, he was rejected by Liverpool after a trial in 1998. He was a tall midfield playmaker who sometimes played through the middle, sometimes played, played out wide and, and left midfields where I'm hoping to slot him in. He did enough in art media per Trauka's European tie against Rangers in 2005 to convince uh, then West Brom manager Brian Robson that he would be a useful addition to the Premier League strugglers midfield. Jan is a skillful, creative goal scorer. Hopefully he will bring those attributes to the club, Robson said. Uh, he replaced Horsfield in his first game and made his debut against Blackburn Rovers. And he said, my dream has come true. I always wanted to play in the Premiership. I feel I can be useful for the team and help them stay up. He didn't. He finished 19th. <laughs> oh, what he only made five appearances and returned to art media at the end of the loan. 
Uh, he did make 25 appearances for Slovakia, including at the 2010 World Cup. Uh, but apart from a spell at Slovan Bratislava, who's Slovakia's best team, his career somewhat petered out. And I think all of this serves to prove my hypothesis that there are really very few tall wide midfielders or wingers. So it's your choice. It's Leon Knight. Um, you can go for Janino. You can go for Albert Kruzat, or you can go for Jan Kozak. That choice is completely yours at 11 pod. A few names that narrowly missed the cut are on the bench for us today, Arthur. Um, who have you got? So I've got a couple. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was just thinking, I've, I've got a couple. It's Andrew Shevchenko and his girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to mention little Barry Bannon. Yeah, I just think I couldn't I couldn't not mention him. I think he's a current player, though, isn't he? He's, he still plays for Sheffield Wednesday, I think. Um, but you just had a very Barry Bannon look on your face when you squared up to do that piece. Uh, and then in terms of, of tall target men, I've mentioned him already, but I think Lucina Traore can feel very, very hard done to, uh, to miss out on a spot in this 11. Mm, I think he just didn't have the command of the word bulb that Nikola Zigic has, and that's why I just couldn't include him, unfortunately. Um, also, a, a giant target man that I considered was Gerald Seabon, who was the six-foot-six Sheffield Wednesday striker, uh, and uh, a little right-back as well, Derek Geary. He was just five-foot-six yeah. playing for Sheffield United in the Premier League. Uh, but they didn't make the 11. This is the 11. Uh, in goal, it's Jorge Campos, left-back Alan Wright, centre-backs Chris Perry and Bobo Balde and right-back Santiago Virgini. Across the midfield, left mid is up for grabs. We've got J-Tab, Papa Buba Diop and Jostein Flo. And up front, Rob Earnshaw and Nikola Zigic. Thanks very much for listening. Arthur, do you have a large... <laughs> <laughs> Where was that coming? <laughs>